0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The Erosion of Gender Equality in China is the topic of this two-part series with Leita Hong Fincher, the author of Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. This book is based in part on her research for the PhD in Sociology she received in 2014 from Tsinghua University in Beijing, China. In our first conversation, we discuss governmental, social, and family pressures on women to marry by age 27. Those who don't are characterized in cartoons and posters published by the government as leftover women. We also discuss why home ownership deeds are most often only recorded in the name of the husband, Regardless of the fact that the wife has made a significant, if not greater, financial contribution to the purchase. In our second conversation, we discuss issues of domestic violence in China and treatment of women in the workplace. When Leita Hong Fincher and I visited by phone on August 9, 2014, we began our conversation with her description of the term, leftover women.
1: Defined um, as shengnü or leftover women in 2007 by the All China Women's Federation, and they defined it as um, an urban professional woman over the age of 27 who is still single. And the same year, 2007, China's Ministry of Education adopted the term shengnü or leftover woman as part of its official lexicon. So ever since 2007, the Chinese state media has very aggressively pushed this term through a lot of news reports and columns and commentaries, and there are also cartoons. Um, And so it's really entered um, the social awareness, and it's become extremely widely used. Throughout China. And it, and it remains widely used even today, seven years after this media campaign really began.
0: Well, let's talk about the All China Women's Federation. That's a state run federation?
1: Yeah, effectively, this Women's Federation is part of the state. Um, even though it's not officially a Communist Party organ, Um, Effectively, that's what it is. It was founded um, around the time of the Communist Revolution, and it was founded in order to protect women's rights and interests. So it tells you a lot about the early communist era and the communist revolution. Um, That was a time when gender equality was really a rallying cry for the Communist Party It was um, a very important part of the revolution. Um, And Mao Zedong, actually, even in his early works, well before the communist revolution in 1949, um, wrote about women's low status in Chinese society. And he wrote about the need to liberate women from these feudal traditions that kept them bound to the home and kept them from taking part in public life. So when you look at the early communist era, um, and this was a time when the All-China Women's Federation was particularly important, um, the Communist Party introduced a lot of initiatives that, that really helped women economically. Um, for example, they assigned women jobs, and they assigned women managerial positions, There was a lot of propaganda showing images of women doing all the things that men did. So women could drive tractors, they could be mechanics, they could be engineers. Um, And all of the slogans at the the time were to encourage women to take full part in the workforce, to help build communist China, to help boost industrial production. And one of the results of these policies um, was of an extremely high female labor force participation. And so in the 1970s, um, in in Chinese cities, the female labor force participation rate was around 90% or even higher than 90% in some cases. So, um, And the Women's Federation, the All-China Women's Federation, was a big part of this.
0: So now, in 2014, it seems like the All-China Women's Federation is taking a different perspective.
1: Yes, um, but I have to add that the Women's Federation is just one part of the whole whole picture of the status of women in China today. So so this organization, the All-China Women's Federation, is basically... Um, the dominant organization that represents women in China.
0: That's a government entity.
1: It's effectively a government entity.
0: Is it controlled by women or men?
1: The head of the Women's Federation is actually a woman, and so it's filled with women. Um, And there are a lot of very committed feminists working within the Women's Federation. And the Women's Federation... Over the decades, ever since it was founded, has done some very good work to promote women's rights. Um, It's sponsored a lot of good research on women. Um, But I point out in my book that there have also been some things that it does that are actually quite damaging to women's rights. And one of the things that it did was, um, especially in 2007 and, and in the years subsequent to that it was um, it really pushed this term Sheungnu leftover women and um, that term has been very damaging to women.
0: Tell us how that term damages Chinese women
1: well first of all just on the face of it it's an extremely insulting term because it refers to women as leftovers as rotten food, something to be discarded after a certain age, which the Women's Federation defined as age 27. So clearly on the face of it, it's an extremely insulting term. Um, but through my research, I found that this term is not just a, uh, an insulting kind of cultural symbol. Um, it, Of course, it's stigmatizes urban-educated single women, but it does a lot more than that because this term itself and the stigma of being urban-educated and single and female in China um, is so intense, and the anxiety uh, about marrying is so intense today that it has resulted in a lot of very damaging economic effects on women. Um, and and I researched specifically China's real estate market and the Chinese obsession with buying homes, particularly when couples get married. So um, I argue that the the media campaign pushing the notion of women as, so-called leftover if they're still single in their late 20s that um, that this kind of pressure also feeds into economic pressure when these women get married and there's intense pressure on them to buy a home that a lot of these women who are at that age where they're considered to be so-called leftover um, they don't necessarily assert their rights to the marital property. And I found that a lot of women in their 20s, before they get married, will actually transfer their life savings over to their boyfriend to finance the purchase of a marital home. But then the women will not put their names on the property deed. And some of these women will really fight to have their names put on the deed at first. But then when it comes time to actually marry and buy the home, um, the data indicates that most of these women are still backing down and leaving their names off the property deed, um, and thereby forfeiting ownership of an extremely valuable asset that they themselves have helped finance. And, and I argue that the the reason, one of the big reasons why so many women are leaving their names off the property deed, even though they want economic independence and they want to own property, is because they're so anxious to get married.
0: That's the woman's internal social pressure, which I would guess, and, and like your take on it, the uh, cultural or familial social pressure to do those two things, one, marry and two, leave the woman's name off her deed?
1: Well, it is most directly, if you just look at that, it is internal pressure and cultural pressure, pressure coming from the women's own parents who are very anxious to have their daughter get married. So um, a lot of women's own parents urge their daughters not to fight with their boyfriends or fiancés to put their name on the property deed for fear of driving that man away. Um, and then of course there's a lot of resistance, of course, from the man's family because um, this there's an intense social norm of the man needing to own property. And home ownership in itself is very much a defining feature of masculinity in China. Um, And in fact, I found that there are a lot of Chinese parents who actually save up over a lifetime so that they can purchase a home for their son. So by and large, Um, I found that Chinese parents tend to buy homes for their sons, but not for their daughters. Or they will put a lot more money into buying a home for their son, but not for the daughters. Because home ownership is seen really as something that a man needs to have, and the woman doesn't need to have. Um, But that's just one part of the picture, because another side is simply the existence of the real estate market itself. Um, When you look at the history of housing um, from the socialist era, and it wasn't until 1998 that China's state council officially privatized housing. And um, so between 1998 and today, um, residential property went from being worth practically nothing to being worth over U.S. $30 trillion at the end of 2013. So now that, that is a staggering increase in value for China's residential property. And I argue that, um, that Chinese women have basically been shut out of this tremendous accumulation of residential property wealth, which is probably the biggest accumulation of property wealth in history.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Leita Hong Fincher, the author of Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Leita, the social mores, the economic values that were in place beginning with the Chinese Revolution in the late 40s, the single child per family in the 70s and 80s have now morphed into the current conditions. What's your take on why this change came about?
1: It's an extraordinarily complicated phenomenon, so you really have to break it down a little bit. Certainly, if you're just talking about China's population planning policy and the so-called one-child policy, which really started to be enforced across the country in 1980 um, the, it, and it's a little bit of a misnomer because it was the these very strict population planning policies were were mainly targeting urban parents so it was largely Chinese cities that were very strictly um, limited to one child but but throughout the rest of China and the countryside, even when these very draconian population planning policies were being enforced, um, including things like forced abortions, which were very widespread in the 1980s. Um, even during that time in the countryside, it was often, um, practically official policy to allow rural parents to have another child if their first child was a girl. Um, but certainly, um, China's population planning policy was very, very strictly enforced through the 1980s, um, and then it started to be loosened more in the 1990s. and And today, it's a very, very rare to hear about a forced abortion, and and that's that's those are basically taking place on a local level by officials who are defying central government policy. But but forced abortions still occur from time to time. Um, but they're no longer nationwide policy. One of the results of this so-called one-child policy is that it has intensified pressure on parents to, um, to selectively abort the fetus. So... Um, because of the widespread availability of ultrasound technology, there have been a lot more sex-selective abortions in recent years. And that has contributed to an extreme sex ratio imbalance. And so the latest statistics show that there are about 117 boys born for every 100 girls. Um, And so that has created another extreme problem for China's population. And that is the existence of tens of millions of basically surplus men who will be unable to find brides. Um, And so this sex ratio imbalance is being identified by the Communist Party as a rather serious threat to social stability. And I argue that this media campaign targeting single urban educated women and stigmatizing these women in their late 20s, putting intense pressure on them to get married, to lower their standards and looking for a husband, to stop being so picky and to stop focusing on their careers. Um, I argue that this intense marriage promotion effort is um, in part an effort to get these women to marry some of all of the tens of millions of excess men who are seen as a threat to social stability. There are other factors in this marriage promotional campaign as well that relate to China's effort to so-called upgrade population quality. And that's also a big part of the population planning policy.
0: How would uh, the word upgrade be defined?
1: Well, the Chinese term is 提高人口素质, which is upgrading population quality. And by that, by quality or 素质, the government means a complicated mix of superior genetic makeup, better education, a more nurturing environment for the human being, Um, and it's basically a eugenic, um, it's a feature of eugenics. There's um, a belief in the Chinese government that, that's quite commonly accepted that some human beings are of higher quality than others, and the belief is that urban educated people in China are generally of higher quality than rural uneducated people, um, and in fact, there used to be a draft eugenics law, and and it had the term eugenics in it. But then, then they changed the name to um, in the nineteen nineties to um, something like the infant and maternal health policy. And but the goal of these policies, which are basically policies about eugenics, um, the goal has has always been to try to um, get the the perceived highest quality people in the country to have more children and to get the perceived lower quality people who tend to be in the countryside to have fewer children. So I argue that this media campaign against so-called leftover women is also very importantly an effort to so-called upgrade population quality um, by targeting those women who are considered by the government to be the highest quality women in the country. These are women who have gone to university. Um, they're considered to have a better genetic makeup because they've excelled at university. Um, they're living in the cities. You know, They've found good jobs. So these are the women that the government really wants to have um, get married and have a child for the good of the nation. And when I actually looked into the term, the origins of the term Shengnu, or leftover women, I realized that shortly before the Chinese state media began this campaign, very aggressively stigmatizing urban, educated single women and calling them leftover, that China's state council came out with a really important population decision. And it said that China had a severe problem of so-called low quality of its population. It said that the low quality of China's population would make it really difficult for China to compete in the global marketplace in the future. And so it was really important to set a goal of so-called upgrading population quality.
0: I'd like to ask about that, because it seems to me that the campaign for women to marry by age 27 is somewhat contradictory or places an arbitrary age factor with a presumption that the quality is less if she's 30 or 35.
1: First of all, even though... The Altina Women's Federation defined the term leftover woman to mean a single urban woman over the age of 27. It's not actually so hard and fast. That age is somewhat flexible. Age 25 to 27 were called uh, leftover fighters who still have the courage to fight for a partner and so on and so forth. And they created these subcategories going all the way up to age 35 and older. Um, But then when, when you talk to urban educated women, actually the marriage anxiety sets in even earlier than 25. And I've talked to women who are in their early 20s who are already coming under intense pressure from their parents or other relatives to get married already. Um, Even though they wouldn't consider themselves to be at that so-called leftover age, they're already starting to worry about becoming a so-called leftover woman.
0: Let's stay with the Chinese state propaganda. And I'd like you to talk for a moment about what the photographs, what the posters, the billboards look like to promote the concept that women should marry by the age of 25 or 26 and certainly before 27.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, um, China's propaganda still certainly exists, and it is propaganda. There is a propaganda ministry. Um, but they don't really, they don't like to call it that anymore in English. It's, it's called publicity. So, um, but, but the propaganda is not so much poster driven on the streets that much anymore. It used to be. And you certainly still see posters, especially in the countryside. Today, we're really in the internet era. And so a lot of this, propaganda, the media campaigns, spreading these very damaging myths about women who are single. A lot of that is just over the Internet. So there are, um, first of all, the language itself is extremely insulting. Um, it describes women as being spoiled goods or yellowed pearls is another term that they've used um, once they're over their late 20s. And if you just look at the cartoons, for example, a lot of the cartoons show um, women in uh, wearing a graduation gown, wearing a mortarboard on their heads, indicating that they've received a university diploma. But then they're basically being mocked in the cartoon. Men are rejecting them, or the women um, are shown as being desperate to get married, but it's too late because they spent their time pursuing their educations. Um, it it typically shows women being um, high above the men, and there is a notion of these urban-educated single women as being so-called the three highs, high income, high professional position, and high education. And the propaganda is basically mocking the educational accomplishments of these women and showing them as being too intimidating for the average man and um, insulting them and telling them that they've spent too much time Furthering their careers, these women are too ambitious and what they really need to do is to lower their sights when looking for a husband. They need to marry fast. Otherwise, it will be too late for them, the message goes, and they'll, they're doomed to stay single forever.
0: Leita Hong Fincher, before we close the first part of our conversation about your book, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China, can you tell us briefly what will happen to the men that are unable to marry because there is no bride available?
1: Well, that's a very important problem. And the fact is that the real demographic crisis facing China is not surplus women or so-called leftover women. It's surplus men, um, the at tens of millions of men who will be unable to find a bride. And in fact, the state media talks about this problem of surplus men, um, and they also have started to refer to these men sometimes as leftover men. And these men are characterized as being largely uneducated, largely concentrated in the countryside. Um, They're depicted as really creating a problem for social stability. They're becoming criminals.
0: Are those characterizations and depictions true?
1: Other scholars argue that excess men who can't find a bride in China will increase the trafficking of women to China because these men are desperate to find brides. And so certainly the trafficking of women from other countries into China does exist. But this is simply not my area of expertise.
0: Well, Leita Hong Fincher, I want to thank you for joining us on the first part of our conversation about your book, Leftover Women.
1: I'm delighted to appear on your show. Thank you for having me.
0: Leta Hong Fincher is the author of Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. This program was recorded on August 9, 2014. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email, curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onested is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.